I see red light. Okay, this is Journeys in Podcasting, Lunchtime Edition. Today we're going to be talking to YJ Kim of Playful Journey Lab at MIT Labs. And we're going to be talking about a couple of different research pieces she's written and some of the presentations that are coming up in places like South by Southwest and a conference at the Teachers College in, in New York. Um, how are you? Who are you? And how did you get to be uh, starting this playful journey lab? So my name is YJ Kim. I'm, a, I'm an assessment scientist. That, that many people get to say that. <laughs> uh, so it's... My work has been kind of at the intersection between uh, assessment design, psychometrics, and learning science. And really my work has been focusing on how we really apply uh, modern theories of uh, learning science, what we know about how people are learning. Uh, and because learning science as a field in our industry has really advanced, and when we look at the school assessment or common assessment practices, we have noticed that uh, disconnect and in when it comes to like classroom assessment, um, I really haven't seen a lot of innovations in terms of how we think about assessment beyond multiple choice tests and things like that. So my work has been in that space for the past 10 years. Um, my work started with a specific work uh, where we apply uh, learning games for assessment purposes. So we call game-based assessment. Um, and then I developed some simulation-based assessment and things like that. And I joined MIT three years ago, uh, and I started looking into uh, teachers' uh, practices and teachers' uh, practices problem related to assessment and what, as a field, we haven't really addressed where uh, how we can help teachers to really practice or transform their practices, assessment practices, in their own context with uh smart little tools that we can develop. Uh, so it's really applying assessment science, learning science, and design thinking, uh, all three kind of together uh, to really innovate how we think about assessment inside of schools and outside of schools. Great. So I'd like to talk a little bit about a research piece that uh, you co-published called um, Embedding Assessment in School-Based Making. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'm in a, uh, there's going to be a lot of overlap from things you say because I've kind of pre-written some questions out here, so excuse that. But you wrote here that traditional assessment approaches, however, often fall short in meeting the needs of assessing learning and developing in-maker classrooms for the following reasons. Traditional instruction often leads students to one clear answer or set path. Maker projects often do not have one right answer, rather are open-ended with multiple possible trajectories towards solutions. To assess, assess such diverse trajectories of learning, assessment needs to be oriented toward the process rather than the product of the activity. With limited time and hands, it's not always practical for a single teacher to collect information in the process. And then you go on to say that maker activities often involve abundant peer learning in the form of collaboration, mentorship, feedback exchange, or the sharing and remixing of ideas. ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other is, uh, since maker learning processes are exploratory and often without any clear steps or stages, traditional assessment can be disruptive to the learning process. For someone who's worked in more experiential learning and, and project-based environments, all this makes total sense. So in maker learning, this all sounds pretty amazing. And I, I wonder what this would look like for traditional school subjects, like what could writer's workshop laboratories learn from the maker space? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So one of the schools that we work with for this work uh, is more subject-based. They have more subject-based curriculum. So we have uh, language art teacher, science teacher, 
than our interdisciplinary kind of curriculum, although they use making. Uh, so it was interesting in terms of how teachers are uh, thinking about the evidence that are generated in their, uh, in a way, traditional like science lab project, right? And there's a research question, there's data collection and things like that. But understanding the process, understanding how the processes where you can actually identify this evidence that I care about, uh, science practices and things like that, can actually enrich uh, how they design the project, they how they design the lab uh, task and things like that. So one of the teachers we work with, she's a science teacher, she's wonderful, and she's been incorporating more and more and making. But in terms of the overall structure of the project, it wasn't that different from, you know, a traditional kind of, you know, science lab kind of things. Uh, but because uh, it's not about like completely being open-ended or it has to be completely open-ended, but it's all about thinking about the affordances of what you're designing and how it's connected to the evidence you're looking for. It actually helped teachers to enrich their own uh, curriculum or their projects. Uh, Chris, I can hear you. You're muted. Sorry, I, I clicked my mouse off while you're talking so the video is not flickering all over the place. Um, in the same passage you meant, you talk about the, the way that some teachers approach this of trying to get this larger learning outcomes documented is through portfolios and, and rubrics. Um, you say some maker educators utilize certain assessment practices to document student learning in open-ended projects, portfolios and rubrics, for example. Mm -hmm. While these provide some structure for teachers to assess student work, they're insufficient to collect the rich data generated in the process of making while simultaneously supporting intentional interactions and meaningful outcomes. Mm -hmm. My experience in this area has been more through Reggio Emilia approach of documentation yeah. of learning. Uh, Project mm -hmm. Zero is making learning visible, which overlays mm -hmm. a lot with that. And um, they've both been kind of inspirations in how to broaden the, the constructs considered in a learning space. How do your methods differ? Like, what is this doing differently than, say, reflecting on documentation for purpose? That's a great question. Uh, there are definitely a lot of similarities because one of the goals we are trying to achieve with the embedded assessment is making data visible, making data shared across different actors, uh, teachers and students, uh, uh, making data connected to actions. Uh, I think we are a little bit more focusing on the finer grain size data and making the connection back to construct a little bit more intuitive than kind of radio type where they're like products or in, but the, also process, but like more product oriented. So a lot of assessment tools we've been developing for the maker based curriculum uh, are getting the moment of demonstrating those constructs. So let's say for example, social scaffolding and we have this tool called the maker moment and it's, we borrow the mechanic of bingo where something happens, you color. Uh, so it's like a little triangle. And when you or your friend is demonstrating, let's say social scaffolding, you color with a different kind of markers. Uh, so if you're, uh, let's say you're demonstrating social scaffolding, you use red. If you're demonstrating risk taking, you use green. At the end of the session uh, or at the end of like 50 minute, whatever making, you look at it and you, oh, like we've been doing a lot of social scaffolding, but really haven't done any risk taking, for example. So it gives a really concrete moment and concrete uh, quantified data to even have the reflection of as a group, how we've been uh, working on this uh, task. And 
that's a little bit different kind of reflection and kind of inference making than regio where it's like whole process kind of following. Uh, so we're really trying to create those moments and more database uh, concrete and tangible. Um, so the reflection can be more evidence-based as well. And we also think a lot about triangulation. So, you know, some of, one of our tools is called Sparkle Sleuth, uh, and it can be used by teacher as like, you know, walking around and when I, you know, when she or he see the moment of Chris demonstrating creativity and whatnot, and like a like little jotting down the notes, the thing that you did or you said, very memorable thing, live on the desk, for example, and just imagine triangling that with a maker moment, like, oh, like, remember, like, you know, YJ, you said that, and you know, the you know, teacher said the same thing. So those are kind of making the data more visible, approachable, uh, more intuitive. Uh, I think that's the little bit of difference from kind of approach that you mentioned. Well, yeah, no, I can see how that fills a gap where um, Reggio Mini approach would be very threatening to a lot of people who are very used to just the data analysis part. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really interested in where this comes from in your development. And I noticed that you, you have done research on, on game-based learning and, and yeah. what, what games afford and the way that uh, we can look at a learning process. Yeah. Um, you talk about um, embedded assessment has been widely adopted in digital learning environments, such as simulations and video games um, to design tasks on a system that can elicit evidence of desired outcomes and to automatically and rapidly create and process rich data generated in the process of performance. I like this learning from our digital tools to enrich the interactivity within our, our physical learning spaces. Um, you know, that's been a big part of tech integration. The benefits of it has been seeing a, a broader picture of learning. I wonder if you might comment on this progression of learning from gaming environments and simulations to understanding makerspaces. Yeah, so when the, the, this project got started between from one one day me hanging out with folks at MakerEd, uh, hanging out in Pittsburgh drinking margarita. We we're talking about, <laughs> you know, how teachers really need better assessment tools for making, uh, yet the only option they have is literally rubrics. Uh, and I'm like, oh, I'm sure they can, you know, we can do, we can apply same approaches that we've been doing in simulations in games in the making context and making assessment more embedded. Uh, hello? Okay, I can hear you. I'm having <laughs> connectivity issues in the house here. Can you can you hear me okay? I can, I can hear you fine, yeah. Okay, we're now patched to my phone, so we'll just okay. keep going like that. Sorry about that. You were in no the of discussing um, your drinking margaritas and you were <laughs> ways that uh, some of the game-based learning assessment could benefit uh, makers sure. moving them beyond just mere rubrics. Right, and like, and I didn't want to use like in that in that context. I didn't want to use like right away building very heavy like psychometric models or things like that, or using machine learning techniques and things like that, because quickly I realized that we don't even know how the interaction should look like. Like, what is that embedded assessment? How should an embedded assessment should look like in classrooms, right? In physical learning environment, it's just not just the making context, but project-based, inquiry-based, right? Um, and I quickly realized that there are not that many tools that enable rich interactions beyond 
at the end, you have rubric and go through your product. And that's the, that's the only option that we have. So all we did was coming up with, you know, paper tools, a lot of paper tools that help us to engage in different types of interactions. Assessment can be more than just rubric and scoring your product. You know, you know, what, you know, what kind of different roles can be shared in classroom in terms of data collection? Um, you know, what kind of playful, uh, you know, mechanics that already exist in game-based learning that we can borrow for those. Uh, so it really helped, it kind of pushed us to think differently about what embedded really mean in classroom and how a lot of things that is totally feasible in game-based and simulation-based assessment breakdown, uh, which is exciting. So they were, okay, like there is going to be no logging system. There are going to be no automatic data generation here. Somebody got to do the work. Uh, then also like pushes, okay, in terms of the division of labor, how the role of assessing, how who's coming up with the rules, who's documenting, who's thinking about evidence is shared across teachers and students. Uh, so it really opens up exciting opportunities in a way that was very different from game-based assessment where game designers and psychometricians set, set up all those rules and create that interaction, right? And now that that work is on students and teachers and, you know, and that also help us to think about, okay, when there is no predetermined that kind of logging system and architecture, then how we make this actions or roles are really seamlessly embedded in the culture of a classroom itself. What kind of devices or tools can we create? So both students and teachers have a common understanding of what this construct means how the good evidence should look like and things like that. So it really pushes boundaries of what assessment really is. We thought that assessment is this data collection tool. And then by doing this work, we quickly realized that no, like assessment really is all about creating the culture, creating the expectations, creating that, um, that connection between what they're doing, what they're trying to learn, what teachers' intentions are, what students' intentions are, and making that all connected. Uh, so it really helps us to think beyond what we thought is embedded assessment and how hard it is to make that happen in classroom. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Well, yeah, no, and for a lot of teachers, uh, especially like I know when I first started out, we didn't really create our own assessments. Our assessments were all dictated from the top uh, as we move more into kind of edu-corporate culture uh, assessments are things that teachers often aren't even that in control of, meaning that they're they're just doing it because that's what the institution does. And mm -hmm. so it may not be any reflection of their own belief system and theory of learning, if mm -hmm. they even have a theory of learning that can be articulated, because mm -hmm. that's not often required of teachers also. So yeah. that's what was really exciting about looking at these tools was, um, wow, this really is going to cause a discussion of, the basis, you know, like the really core of why people go into teaching, which is they have, you know, some theory of learning or, or what they believe about it. I also heard this term you used of the division of labor. So I assume that's coming from activity theory. Yeah. And, and, and so that, that's for me, that's been like a very eye opening way to look at just tech, not tech integration within classrooms. When we throw new tools in the classroom, how does that change the whole learning environment? And I think we're going to circle around and talk more about that as we go. Um, let's talk a little bit about this idea of embedded assessment and, and this, you know, the maker elements that you all have identified and worked with schools in. You say that embedded assessment is 
and making should include a clear understanding of a possible outcome space and how specific actions within the learning environment could be connected to these constructs. In our work, we designed our assessment tools targeting seven constructs, agency, design process, social scaffolding, uh, productive risk-taking, troubleshooting, bridging knowledge, content knowledge that we call maker elements. These seven constructs are not meant to be a comprehensive list, but a list of skills and dispositions that maker educators wish to further foster during maker activities. Um, how did this selection take place and what's been your inspiration for learning about maker spaces? Uh, we didn't definitely come up with that list in a way. Uh, we are basing on two framework. One came out of Exploratorium, one coming out of uh, Pittsburgh Children's Museum. They have done great, they've done this research years, uh, try to understand what students are learning, what kids are learning from maker activities. Uh, so these are, some people call it maker capacity, uh, maker skills, maker practices, um, Everybody had different kind of names. So, and, uh, you know, the focus of our work wasn't coming up with a new framework. Like people has done great job of creating those frameworks. Let's use that and making real in classrooms. So Exploratorium and Children's Engine both informal learning spaces. So we knew that right away, we need to do some translation work. Uh, when we are co-designing these assessment tools, we start having conversations with teachers. These are the framework and these are the people that they said kids can learn from making. Uh, how how do you feel about this? Is this something that you do? Like, is this something you value? Like, you know, does this does this make sense with your you know sixth graders? And a lot of based on that understanding, the teachers like definitely agency. Like, we are not doing that enough. Uh, risk taking. I want them to just go a little bit more. Like, just like, try to like just not just meeting all the like. They, like, you know, be just be done with it, but like trying to just like nudge more and go more uh, and things like that. So they had teachers who we could, could design these assessments. They're the one who selected that. And also, as you can imagine, content, right? Uh, it's there because at the, end of, at the end of the day, when teachers are thinking about projects and make activities, they all start from the content standards. Like, okay, like I know I need to teach evolution. You know, how can I make it a little bit uh make it a uh, better, more deeper, engaging experience, right? That's why they want to use making, but content standards in today's ecosystem is there. So how we can help them to address that and the bridging the knowledge because, you know, in hands-on maker activities, it's not just like you're memorizing the facts and just, you know, repeat that, you actually use that. And by doing so, uh, you're con making connections. So those are the pieces that are added to our framework because, again, we work with teachers, classroom teachers, and these are the real things that they actually care about and want to address in their maker activities. Hmm. So let's move to, on to constructs. You wrote that embedded assessment should be construct driven and start by clarifying target outcomes that an activity intends to foster. Embedded yeah. assessment can measure not just knowledge and skills, but also attitudes, beliefs, interests, practices, and instances often referred to as constructs. While this is a principle for any good assessment, this principle is particularly relevant for maker environments where each student's learning process can take various forms and trajectories and where anticipated learning outcomes tend to be ambiguous. 
So before maker-centered learning was a term, there was experiential learning and project-based learning and critical events. Um, how have these informed in your idea of embedding formative assessments? That's actually interesting that you brought that up because <clears throat> when we started working with maker educator, we didn't even think about how making it kind of uh, within that spectrum that you can imagine from project-based like maker uh, and has kind of similar understanding of how kids are learning uh, and how we can foster uh, more holistic ways of learning. Uh, so when we started this work, we didn't even like know that this is going to be something the project-based learning people get excited about. But we quickly realized that like people like reach out to us, oh, I have this project, can I use your assessment tools? And because it's the same, you know, same way of thinking about learning, and same way, same way of thinking about assessment. Like we all understand that there are different pathways. Uh, it's not linear, it's going back and forth. Uh, and there's a lot of social aspects baked into that learning. Uh, and there is, it's not just a content, a lot of skills and attitudes and beliefs that kids are developing from this. Uh, and because our uh, maker center assessment been really focusing on the process and kind of data that came to the process, you can apply that fairly easily in uh, kind of project-based learning kind of uh, method as well. So we, we heard that from teachers and we initially even didn't think about that uh, as a possibility. Yeah, I think it's because maker-centered learning has is fairly recent as far as a, a term. It, you know, I think it's been around for a long time, but I think it's often been associated with um, project spaces. You know, before we had uh, shop classes in high schools where you could go and just learn how to make things. Um, yeah. But then on top of that, there's like um, I'm thinking of Ron Berger's uh, an essay on his essay on on excellence, where, where he talks a lot about carpentry and the making of things and being a craftsman. And then design thinking is often talking about this mixture of artisans and artists uh, of, of merging the two as well. So I, I think it's a natural flow that those things kind of fall into the same umbrella, even though I do understand that yours is coming much more from a game-based study, which is also equally as fascinating. Um, let's talk about these tools a little bit, and I'm not sure how much you can go into them, but I assume this is what you'll be presenting at upcoming conferences um, you mentioned the Sparkly Sleuth, the Field Guide. Sparkle Sleuth, yeah. Sparkle Sleuth, excuse me. Uh, field Guide, Stuck Station, Stereo Craft. Stuck Station was one that I really found affinity with. Um, Stereo Craft, Maker Element, Poster, and Superpower Hour. How much can you tell us about these? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I wish I had my poster with this. I can visualize, like, show the visualization. Uh, so how we think about these tools is um, kind of three different chunks of uh, assessment or work. So the first part is all about you know, how you create the norm, how you create the culture. Uh, therefore, the embedded data collection can happen. Like if we, you don't talk about concerts, if you don't, have a common understanding of what the evidence look like, then there's no way, Jose, that students are going to be able to collect evidence, right? Or you as a teacher know uh, what how the evidence is going to look like. So, so Superpower Hero and the Maker Element posters are intended to do that work. Uh, the Superpower Hero is uh, 
we have a little short stories of inventors. It can, it can be like famous inventors. It can be your neighborhood inventor, like news article. And students read that short article and then they start identifying these maker elements. Oh, this person had agency and you know, he wanted to solve this problem because it matters to him and it matters to community. So the kids, middle school kids don't even know what agency really mean, right? So give them vocabulary, but give them language to talk about, talk to each other and, and understand what it really means. Um, and then the poster really visualize those constructs. So you can walk into the classroom, it's there. So like, oh, agency, oh, risk taking and in the process of making, you're like, oh yeah, that. Even that uh, level of like making this uh, construct and evidence or how you talk about construct and evidence more approachable to students and teachers. So that's really the goal of those tools. And uh, Sparkle Sleuth, uh, Stuck Station and Maker Moment are in the process, in the moment data collection tools. Uh, so as I said earlier, Maker Moment is like a part of the mechanical bingo, you color different things. Uh, it can be individual, it can be shared uh, per group. Uh, so you can imagine uh, I have my own or we can have it as a one as a group. Uh, uh, Sparkle Sleuther is typically done by teachers, but also students can take the role of Sparkle Sleuther and walk around and like when they see something and like, they can give away their slips. Uh, Stack Station it really is meant to uh, help students recognize the moment of, oh, I'm not being productive here. Uh, instead of just like trying to kind of bang out, I'm going to go to my stuck station and talk about what's happening and reflect and come up with an idea that I can iterate. Um, so it's really in the moment kind of data question. What are those critical moments? How they look like kind of thing. And the field guys, uh, and that's one of our weakest area in terms of our development is that what do you do with the data? It's, you know, are you trying to calculate a, a grade, single grade? I hope not, then what are alternative ways of communicating this evidence you're learning uh, using all this, the, the data you, you know, collected throughout this making process and how you make sense out of it. Uh, and field guide is meant to do that. Um, but as you can imagine, that's when we start getting the kind of system level barriers, right? Like if the school has grading system, it doesn't matter if you have field guide or not, because they're not going to use it. So that kind of transaction value talking about like what assessment grade has certain, everybody understands grade. Everybody knows what A means. Uh, but when that kind of synthesized, aggregated, look different, suddenly it, it means nothing. Like it can be really well documented um, field guide, but it's not, it's, it's hard to translate it to A or B. To do that, you have to have another rubric, and that really defeats the goal of this embedded assessment. So that has been, in a way, the most challenging kind of bucket or chunk of work that we've been doing to kind of make a progress of how using all these assessment tools, data collection tools, you collect all this evidence and whatnot, what do you do with it at the end? Uh, it has been really challenging in a way. Yeah, and that's, you know, I know you don't want to say that education is political, but that's where I feel like your tools are political and that, um, you know, assessment and grades are a currency, 
And this is the way that teachers are assessed. This is their criteria of accountability. This is the way that administrators are assessed. This is the way that schools get funded. This is the way that, that students prove to their parents that they're not wasting their teacher's money or their time on school. Um, and so I can see where these things are. Um, you know, I've come up against the same wall, for example, when we were looking at ISTE student standards and 21st century learning skills uh, and new generation science standards uh, and then new literacies, which I'm very fond of. These are things that are, you know, we brought to the school and then the immediate response is, oh, well, let's just create standards and assessment. And I was sort of like, well, well, not, now we're just pouring more assessment on teachers on top of all this other assessment they have. And yet they offer such a much richer, rounded picture of what a learning system looks like. So that's mm-hmm. where I think you're getting at, um, like, the ideal application of data within a school is that the data is there to inform our beliefs and it's there to fill up our intuition with such rich you know artifacts of data that when we plan our next moves we're not just pulling it out of a hat and doing something out of nowhere but we have data to back it up with but not forgetting that there are humans that are making these plans and the the humans belief systems and their their intuitions and their heuristics all those things matter a great deal at the same time yeah Um, both students and teachers yeah yeah, yeah no, I mean, whole learning community, but I feel like this is where, for me, documentation of these things and at least like kind of looking at a making learning visible strategy of creating documentation through photos, video clips, and then writing captions and reflections underneath them so that if people don't really understand even what we're looking at, we have identified these were the objectives that we were going after, and this is what we found as evidence when we were looking at them. Um, so, yeah, I think that... It's kind of one of the one of the steps, but I also think you're you're talking about a much uh, bigger institutional issue of of getting the the criteria of accountability to shift as well, so that we can include this kind of larger look at not just cognitive domain, but we're looking at psychomotor domain and effective domain at the same time. Yep. Let's continue because I think you have some much richer uh, ways of getting at this as as we go through. Um, so you also wrote that teachers are reported that they've been struggling to incorporate reflection at any point in students making practices during and after an activity. And they express the need to improve their noticing practices to give just-in-time feedback on students making. These findings suggested that embedded assessment tools could focus less on seamless integration and more on supporting teachers and students at the moments when it's helpful to exchange feedback or identify learning in an activity while being mindful of time constraints. In the book, Maker-Centered Learning, which I'm sure you're familiar with because I see that you have referenced CLAP and, and others that come out of the Project Zero mm-hmm. environment, I was surprised to read that some of the teachers within some of the pioneer maker spaces in the country are um, very uninterested in assessment, but were focused on meaningful process and product, that this is what was driving the learning for them. They felt confident that learning was already evident. Is the assessment in response to school accountability measures that we were just talking about? Or is it a shift towards core teacher beliefs that now we're creating assessments more from what teachers believe in? What are your objectives there? It's, it's both. It has to be both. Uh, again, going back to my conversation with the maker ed folks uh, drinking margarita, and they are like, we work with a lot of teachers and, you know, they, even if they really believe in this, 
they need they need buy-in, they need evidence they, to continue to have schools investment and communities investment in this. They need evidence. Uh, so in a way, it's accountability, uh, but it's just, you know, to just show that, provide evidence for what you believe. And a lot of teachers, of course, say that, you know, we don't need assessment because I know my students are learning. But at the same time, a lot of times, but all these other stakeholders are not going to be in your classroom all the time noticing every single thing that you're noticing. So we need a better way of communicating outside of your classroom, beyond your own context. So that's why I care a lot about assessment tools that really have diverse forms of evidence and ways to communicate that beyond, oh, they're having great time, uh, you know, and have this, you know, kind of anecdotal stories about the students. Because we always have that. And, you know, obviously that's never really enough. So we need more to be able to really concretely talk about what they're learning. So, yes, it's a kind of uh, weapon to protect their practices and their belief. Uh, like a Trojan horse kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and also it empowered them, therefore they can pursue what they believe is important. And, you know, a lot of teachers, maker educators, they talk a lot about agency, student agency creativity, uh, you know. And again, that's not part of, you know, state standard, standard testing. So, you know, you cannot really prove that. Uh, but by having a way that they can talk about this evidence, uh, I believe that that can empower them and therefore they can protect that, their own agency as a teacher. Mm. No, I definitely get it. I understand I understand your objective. I, I kind of wanted to hear your explanation. So mm -hmm. let's talk about this idea of uh, the scope that once you put uh, tools of assessment in there, you talked about activity theory and how that changes the way that we can identify how we look at learning or even what we're looking at. Um, mm -hmm. But it can also be restrictive. So you wrote that feedback from teachers indicates that all seven constructs are identified as maker elements. They're all highly valued and could be or should be observed in maker classrooms. However, it is challenging to observe several constructs at a time. Some teachers and coaches suggested during one workshop that two constructs might be the maximum number to be meaningful, meaningfully introduced. So this is a struggle because as we broaden our picture of learning, we also broaden kind of the idea of what we're looking at as far as a learning system. Uh, any suggestions on getting started with the maker elements, how to keep this from becoming just another poster on the wall, another filler checklist for teachers to look at? That's a great question. <laughs> Sorry, they, I, I, I've been teaching for years, so I'm trying to hit you know, problematic area. So if you ask me like how we really deeply understand any standards and what it really means or any learning outcomes and how good or poor evidence of that look like, what is a productive engagement of, of that look like, we don't really have a good understanding of that. Uh, and I think, and because there are so many, <laughs> there are so many standards, there are so many goals, there's so many things that we have to address. And what we've been um, finding out so far working with teachers is that, uh, you know, you don't need to try to do all of them at the same time. So start with a small set, smaller set, and really deepen your understanding what that constructs mean, how they look like, 
how students are understanding that and then continue to add more. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a good answer for <laughs> uh, your, your question, unfortunately, yet. Um, I really want to, I mean, like, so far, we only work with two schools. That's not, you know, that's not uh, all teachers. Uh, or therefore, we don't really have good and deep understanding of different practices and how they evolve and what are best ways to help teachers to transform their practices with this embedded assessment making. Uh, that hasn't been the, the primary focus of the work. The primary focus uh, so far has been how should an embedded assessment look like in classroom uh, with maker-centered curriculum. So that's one area we definitely want to do more and better and really understand how, what, what can we do to make that practice transformation happen? Like what are, what are theories of learning there for teachers? Uh, because I think we're so good at throwing tools at teachers and hoping that they are gonna, you know, just pick, pick all of them up and just like implement so well and be done with it. But truth is, that's not how it works. So yeah, that's my kind of personal hope that we continue to do research in that area further. Mm. Well, I, I, I think you're approaching the right angle. I mean, as, as a teacher, like, I think there's nothing more than uh, validating than someone asking you, what do you believe as a teacher? You know, getting teachers to talk about their core beliefs mm -hmm. and working from their core motivators, because evidently it's definitely not the pay. If you look at the teacher strikes going around the country, um, you know, the one in Oakland in particular was particularly fighting when they talk about what a one room apartment cost in, in San Francisco compared to what that it would be like 60% of a beginning teacher's salary that, you know, we've created these jobs that are not in some areas of the country are not really sustainable as considered to be professions that could, you know, support people. So a lot of people that are going into the profession obviously have other core beliefs and other core motivators. And I think the more we tap into that, the more we're going to create like longevity and respect in that profession. I want to take a major tact here because um, I'm looking at the time, but I'm also would like to cover some of your um, research piece that you wrote, the future of assessment in technology, rich environments and psychometric considerations. Mm -hmm. I found this particularly eye-opening just in the design of measurements of, of how you identify and, and measure constructs. So let's see if we can pick up apart this a little bit. You open with this beautiful vision. You say, Imagine an education system maybe 10 or 20 years hence when students would be immersed in many different learning contexts, all of which capture and measure their dynamic growth and knowledge and skills, both cognitive and non-cognitive. And then the system uses the information to further enhance their learning. In this complex, interconnected digital world, people are learning constantly and producing copious digital footprints or data. You also published this before the last year of all the tech scare of Google and Facebook and, you know, all, all the different ways that yeah. our biometrics are being captured and, and manipulated. But, but I, I definitely see where you're going. I wonder if you might comment on two things, how the new data collection of our current technologies raise awareness of learning as a system much bigger than our, our one variable, one context at a time. And the second is, despite our larger learning picture afforded by technologies, there will always be invisible aspects of learning. Uh, how do you account for that so that we don't get too constrictive? 
That's a great question, Chris. <laughs> uh, I think I'm optimistic about affordances of data. I think uh, why? Because what in terms of data we're collecting in schools, and you know, kids spend only like eight hours or less inside of school, right? And what, how much, how much data we have about them? How much do we know about their, who they are as human uh, other than their grades? Uh, so I really, and these kids, send kids, log into all these websites, go play games, uh, buy stuff, <laughs> check out Twitters, and they spend so much time in these spaces. And it, it really provides good, uh, or it's it's a good space or a place to think about how we understand learners uh, just beyond their content knowledge. So I do I do believe that their digital footprints footprints can be a great place to start thinking about assessment that is not just testing, but assessment that is really uh, a tool to understand different pathways of human development. Uh, so I'm optimistic about that kind of data and affordances of digital spaces. Uh, but we also need to be very cautious about, <laughs> you know, what kind of data is collected, who's collecting the data, and who's setting up the rules related to that. And I think what we've been hearing from, you know, incidents in the past about how data is poorly used. Um, and, and I think it's because we don't really have good sense of, I think it, it goes back to the overall society's kind of literacy around data and like machine learning and things like that and how, what is possible with that. And I think, uh, as and I, I think that's why we really do care about assessment. I think it's because assessment, data literacy, evidence-based reasoning, all that is really mindset and skill that we hope the kids to develop as a productive citizen, right? Because otherwise, we're gonna get screwed over by these tech companies because if you don't even understand what the process looks like, you don't understand why who's making decisions around what kind of data being collected, how they're making sense of what kind of algorithms are cho chosen, and things like that matter. So I think that we need to be really careful and do a better job of really preparing the whole society, be more literate about, uh, I guess, what data can do or, or therefore what are some of the areas that can go wrong, <laughs> like a better word. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm a huge tech optimist as well. Like I, I believe that there's, there's more good that this is going to do for education and learning processes than, than bad. It's problematic that we've courted and um, allowed tech companies to kind of exploit us teachers in a way that we, you know, we have brought in, I'm personally responsible for bringing in a lot of tech into schools and then, you know, showing the exemplars of, of the, the smart ways that this can be used. I also look around and I'm in here in Bogota, Colombia and Colombia scores like fourth in the world, I think, as far as the information I was looking at recently 
of the number of hours that people spend online. And so if we are going to have all these kids with all these smart devices, to, to me, the, the smart thing to do is teach the intelligent use of the tech so that we're not just leaving it out there, you know, like for children to just kind of passively pick up these instruments, not realizing how it's um, manipulating them. You um, are very strong in this idea of ongoing assessment. The, this is uh, like a current through the research that I read, um, and you wrote that ongoing assessment is not a single event. Rather, evidence is gathered over time uh, across context. Estimates of student knowledge, skills, and other attributes are continually updated based on multiple observations in diverse context rather than a single observation in one point in time. Um, I feel that we need a history. Someone needs to write the history of assessment in schools to raise awareness, not just on our gravitation towards the cognitive domain, ignoring any effective and psychomotor domains, that which is easily quantified. But today with 21st century learning, new generation science standards, design process, project-based learning, new literacies, and a slew of others, all require more dynamic ways to document learning trajectories. You're working on the tools of assessment um, how important for you is this idea of product of learning? So project-based learning, product-based learning, social action learning, where the product is kind of what you're driving at. Um, mm -hmm. and what about factors like student-based inquiry, cooperative goals, peer relations, agency? I'm thinking more through Bandura's lens here of individual proxy and collective um, challenge-based learning common in STEM compared to more open learning products. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. I just threw at you. Sorry. No, that's fine. I think it depends. I think depends on uh, depends on what you want to measure. I think products are fine. A product, good product, and you know, thinking about what the end product looks like in terms of student learning is very, very important because you know, unless what you're hoping them to create at the end is good, the process is not going to reach either. So I'm not saying that only process matters. I think product is absolutely important because again, um, you know, if if students don't think about or if the product is, itself doesn't have affordances to have multiple ways of solving it, have multiple ways of bringing my own uh, flavor into it, have uh, that kind of different entries to that. Uh, it's really going to be it's really going to be difficult to make the process engaging and um, interesting. So product really matters as well. But the reason why I keep emphasizing process is because even with inquiry based learning things like that, because people believe that assessment is something that happened at the end when product is done, while learning is never done. Right, learning is such it's a continuous thing, ongoing thing. Yet, okay, we're all done. Here's a product. That's when assessment happened. That's why I really emphasize ongoingness, uh, process oriented, because by shifting the focus and then by, by looking at just not just product, but process, we can actually open up kind of things we can measure better than just product. Because product is just one source of evidence. And it could be limited if you don't look at process. Um, that's how I think about it. So 
Um, I have a lot more questions for you, but I know that we're very limited on time, so I'm not going to go into a lot of the other parts, but I hope that we did some justice to your idea of this continuous formative assessment, how it changes the scope of learning uh, and what our, what our technologies, both our human-centered technologies and our, our digital technologies are, are affording in, the, in this bigger picture. Um, I noticed from the South by Southwest schedule that you have, I'm not sure if you or your lab, but you all are presenting at several events. Can you um, maybe just give us a very short pitch on what we can expect to see at South by Southwest? Yes, uh, knowing that a lot of people are listening to podcasts are teachers. Uh, so we have three sessions at South by. One is a playful assessment. So it's overall kind of approach overview of like what we mean by playful assessment and how teachers can embody play, playful learning principles in, on their, uh, in their own assessment tools. And so we're going to have some workshop around, you know, you're doing, uh, you're using rubric, you're doing this in your classroom. Let's introduce some playful, uh, learning principles so you can make that, uh, more playful. So that's the workshop. And we also have a playful, assessment teacher meetup. And that's where I really want to hear from teachers. I know there are a lot of good teachers out there who are trying to make assessment better and thinking about this uh, or been doing this way before I start researching this. Uh, so that's the, the venue we created to like really meet with these folks and learn from them. Uh, we're going to hear about kind of, uh, you know, problems or things that you want to do better and how we can be helpful. So the meetup is really for that. And another session is uh, with Maker Ed. Uh, that's the embedded assessment in Maker Center curriculum session. I think it's on Wednesday, uh, where we're gonna actually showcase all these tools that I talked about, and uh, teachers are gonna actually use that while they're working on a Maker activity. So if you hear this podcast and if you're intrigued by our work, please come to uh, our sessions. Uh, I think next week, right? Monday through Wednesday. Mm. Um, and I also see there's other publications that are coming out, uh, some work on game-based learning. Uh, where can people go to find out more about this? Uh, so for the game-based assessment uh, work, the game that we've been developing or game-based assessment that we've been de developing is called the Shadow Spect. It's targeting ninth grade geometry standards plus spatial reasoning plus creativity plus persistence. Uh, we're gonna have a structured poster session at ARA in April. This is a, a conference that's gonna be in Toronto. Uh, also, we're gonna uh, launch the game soon so teachers can check it out and play in their classrooms. So follow us on our website and the game will be available soon. Great. And thank you for dedicating the hour. I think this is incredible work. I look forward to following your lab and, and what you guys publish out of there. Um, we're going to disconnect here, but if you'll just stay on for one minute uh, so we can uh, talk a little bit further. <laughs>